battle in the heart of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, And we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, your boss wants your next new co-worker to be a child. Politicians are play-acting like they care about you. Tennessee workers are fighting to keep right to work, quote-unquote, out of the state's constitution. All that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number. The phone line, the call-in line, is not going to be open during the main show today. We have several guests lined up already, but you can text the program. You can text us anytime at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. And you can leave a voicemail throughout the week. We will be opening the phone lines in the second half of the show in overtime after we go off the radio. If you, had, if you uh, haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, uh, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you should follow us online. We're anywhere you find anything online, all at The Valley Labor Report on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, wherever you get your podcasts, all at The Valley Labor Report. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation, buy our new hat, you can go to our website, tvlr.fm. You can donate at tvlr.fm slash donate. You can buy something at tvlr.fm slash store. Or you could become a patron at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. If you're a member of a union, you should get your local to sponsor the show. You can reach out to me for more details on that. I actually uh, went and talked to a local union in the area just last week um, about sponsoring the program. So I am always available to come to your general meeting to talk about the show, uh, answer questions that your members might have, um, or talk about anything. I just like going to union meetings and talking to folks. So if you just want me to come and hang out with you, uh, if you feed me, I'll be there. That's kind of the <laughs> that's the trade-off there. Uh, let's go to the, uh, um, <clears throat> the text messages really quick. I got a text last week. Uh, Hi, Jacob. Didn't get to watch the 1029 show until Tuesday, and I've been meaning to ask, what temperature was it in Alabama that made you bust out that sweater? Um, And it was not particularly cold in Alabama. I just really like that sweater. So I was very happy when the temperature dropped uh, just slightly below room temp, and so I was able to bust it out. I'm a big sweater guy. I love sweaters, but you can't wear them in the summer because it gets too hot. So... um, 
So as soon as as soon as it gets uh as soon as it gets cool enough that I'm not gonna die, you're gonna see me wearing sweaters. So that's the answer to that question. Um Alabama Governor Kay Ivey is pleading with Joe Biden to lower wages of construction workers in Alabama, if you can believe it. And that's not a joke. That's what the outcome would be if President Biden listened to her and rescinded his executive order about what are called project labor agreements. Alabama Today reported that on October 17th, Kay Ivey and 18 other Republican governors issued a letter to the president opposing his executive order on PLAs, project labor agreements. So what are PLAs? What are PLAs? Project labor agreements are just agreements that the people that want the construction make with unions on terms and condition of employment that workers on that construction site will have. Okay? It's just setting terms and conditions of employment that contractors have to agree to in order to be able to work on that particular project, and they're set to the union standard, generally speaking. That does not mean, contrary to false information that you will see on uh, that you'll see on organizations like the National Right to Work Foundation. They have on their website that project labor agreements award exclusively to union contractors. And they make it sound like non-union contractors cannot bid on PLA projects. And that is simply, folks, that is simply not the case. Non-union contractors can bid on these contracts. They just have to agree to pay the people that they employ just on this particular contract. They have to agree to pay them the wages that are set out in the project labor agreement. They have to agree to train them to the uh, criteria set out in the project labor agreement. They have to agree to abide by the safety standards that are laid out in the project labor agreement. And that's not even to say that they've got to change their entire business model or that they've got to change the wage structure across their entire business. If worker A works on this PLA project for non-union contractor whatever, they're going to get paid those PLA wages on the PLA project. If the non-union contractor wants to cut their wages on some non-PLA project a week later, or even if they're working two different projects in the same week, they can do that. They can do that. That does not mean that non-union contractors have to become union. That does not mean that workers on PLA projects have to become members of the union. It does mean, what it means is that in order to bid contractors, in order to bid on this construction, contractors, union or not, have to agree to pay certain wages, adhere to certain safety and certification standards, and keep more of the workers on this construction project local. Joe Biden signed an executive order directing all federal construction projects over $35 million to utilize project labor agreements. Which is a good thing for the reasons noted above, right? Um, when we are, when we as the taxpayer 
are paying thing or are paying for things when we are funding construction when we are doing this type of stuff we should not only be concerned with getting the lowest price we because as as the government as the public we do not have to be motivated simply by profit we can be motivated by other things and i think Another thing that we can be motivated by that would be good for us as the public, for our representatives and government to be motivated by, is ensuring that people who work for us are paid well, are paid a living wage, can be able to support their family. And that's something that construction workers often don't get. 40% of construction workers, of non-union construction workers, are on some sort of public welfare program because they don't get paid enough that's not going to be the case on these pla projects if they get paid pla wages they're not going to need to be on these uh, and so you know ultimately when you take all of the things into consideration if workers on pla projects don't need these other things like food stamps or whatever then ultimately maybe we as the taxpayer are even saving money. And also, project labor agreements really are not shown to increase the price of a project that much, but they do actually ensure that a project, PLA projects, are more often completed with uh, uh, on time, and they're more often completed without safety incidents or with fewer safety incidents because of the increased safety standards, because of the increased training that workers have to go through to be on these projects. So these are really good things for us as the taxpayer to try to be putting out there when we are when we are uh, uh, you know it's stepping into the market and stepping into these construction projects. When we're building federal buildings, when we're doing this federal construction, highway construction, we should be ensuring that the people working on these projects for us as as the community, as the public, are paid well. I think the people who build our roads should be able to support a family. Right. That's that's not asking a lot. I don't think it's asking a lot that the state's purchasing power right. through tax dollars that should be raising economic standards or at least keeping standards equivalent to, you know, decent jobs in the community. And what Governor Ivey and her colleagues are asking for is the use of state purchasing power, the use of yeah. tax dollars to lower the standards for working people in their own communities. Right. Exactly. And and that's and and K Ivy signed a letter asking him to rescind this order, which would mean what? Lower wages for workers in Alabama on federal construction projects. It would actually mean that less of the workers in Alabama are from the state on these federal construction projects. And who does it benefit? Big construction bosses, which, of course, you know, those are going to be the donors to our campaign, right? It's not going to be, you know, normal working folks. And this is totally in line with her actions uh, on this issue. She even flew to Japan to dissuade Toyota, which is a private company, let's remember, from utilizing a PLA in their um, in their uh, uh, Toyota, Toyota Mazda plant here in Huntsville in Madison County. Toyota used a project labor agreement to build their plant here because they recognized the benefit that it would it would give them uh, to have you know the project completed on time right. <laughs> and and uh, and it it is helping workers here in Alabama it's helping workers in the state 
and and so and Kay Ivey actually flew to Japan to try to get to, to dissuade Toyota from paying her citizens more, from ensuring that her citizens are actually the ones that are employed on that project. Those are her priorities. And that's what she's doing with this letter to President Biden, is trying to lower wages of working Alabamians, is trying to make less Alabamians actually be the beneficiaries of this public money that's going to be building these roads and whatever other construction projects are going to be over $35 million. So it's very frustrating. And, and so, you know, as you, as you head to the ballot box, you know, uh, remember that kind of stuff on Tuesday, that she is trying to make your wages lower. She is trying to actually... Make sure that you're not the one getting the work in her state. Whoever put this letter in front of her ought to be ashamed. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, infinite content in the chat says the government should not be in the profit business. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, they also say, if PLA rules are in place, how can the state of Alabama use prison labor to do the work? <laughs> right. Yeah, that would, <laughs> that would uh, definitely hinder that. Wouldn't that wouldn't fly. Yeah, that wouldn't fly. Um, <laughs> Um, and, uh, another, have you heard about the labor war with teachers and the government in Ontario? Um, I've heard bits and uh, I've heard a little bit about that. I, I, I think CUPE, uh, the support staff in Ontario, they're working on, they're, they're like, they were going towards a strike, but then the premier, which is like the governor of that province, was, um, made it illegal for them to do that. And there's been a bunch of, there's been a bunch of stuff going on. We need, it might, might be good to talk about that at some point. Thanks for putting um, it on our radar. I yeah. uh, was not familiar with it and definitely want to look into it. Yeah. 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 Um, Adam, have we got Terry Gerstein in the Zoom yet? Yes, we do. We do. So let's go ahead and bring in our first guest. The first guest of the program today is uh, Terry Gerstein. She is the director of the State and Local Enforcement Project at the Harvard Law School Labor and Work Life Program. Previously, she worked for over 17 years enforcing labor laws in New York State, including as the Labor Bureau Chief for the New York State Attorney General's Office and as a Deputy Commissioner in the New York State Department of Labor. Uh, that's our kind of law enforcement officer. <laughs> Terry, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, before we get into the meat of, of why we brought you here today, um, reading your bio yesterday made me think of something. You know, we've had this big issue, and I'm not sure how closely you've been following it, but with child labor in the state of Alabama recently at Hyundai facilities. Um, and our attorney general hasn't said anything at all about it since it was made public in July. And actually, he has known about it since local police informed him back in February. So our attorney general has been aware of preteens working in Hyundai facilities and Hyundai manufacturing facilities with amputation hazards, with OSHA violations for amputation hazards in this state. And he hasn't said anything about it. Um, you know, just just to be fair, in their press releases regarding the civil penalties that are being levied against these companies, against the Hyundai suppliers, both the Alabama Department of Labor and the U.S. Department of Labor, um, they have mentioned the attorney general's office as people that supported their investigation. Um, but if that is even the case, the attorney general's office don't seem they don't seem proud of it. They haven't issued a, st a press release about it. They haven't you know, the guy hasn't so much as tweeted about it. Right. But. They've constructed this entire apparatus on their website where you can, you know, complain if you get censored on Twitter or whatever. 
Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I've been saying this whole time that the AG should, should be mo more proactive in protecting children and, and workers from exploitative bosses. But I met with total disinterest from conservative folk on the radio, conservative politicians, um, or even them basically saying that, oh, that's not the attorney general's job, that's the Department of Labor's job. And and we saw that they've gotten civil violations and, and civil penalties, and they're going to have to pay a fine. And so, so, you know, there we go. That's the extent of the thing. Um, wh what do you think, as somebody who's actually worked as a labor law enforcer for the New York attorney general, what do you think that a properly motivated attorney general could be doing in this situation? Well, AG's powers vary a lot from state to state. Their jurisdiction varies, their resources vary, but absolutely an AG's office could certainly like speak out. Every single AG has soft powers. They have a really very high profile position of public leadership. And every single AG, regardless of their jurisdiction, has the ability to speak out, to write op-eds, to ex look at their statutes and see what kind of jurisdiction they might have. Do they have criminal authority? Do they have, you know, are there are there ways that they could bring a case? I would say, you know, just to give a few examples, there are other AG's offices that have been very active in pursuing child labor violations. When I was at the New York AG's office, we had a couple of child labor cases that we brought criminal charges in. Um, one of them was a teenager who was working at a restaurant upstate. He was 17 years old and his arm was severed when he was working on machinery Jeez. that kids are not allowed to use. And we ended up bringing criminal charges in that case. Um, we also had another case that was really tragic where a 14 year old kid working on a farm was killed operating machinery that kids that age are prohibited from being able to operate. And so these are, you know, starkly serious kinds of conditions and kids are extremely vulnerable um, at workplaces. And, you know, I don't know in depth all of the exact powers of the AGs in every single state. So I don't know in, you know, what they necessarily, you know, what the AG necessarily could have done, but certainly a, an AG who cared about protecting children and who cared about protecting workers would speak out about it and would be scouring the statutes for any opportunity to take action. Um, and I would add as well that th this whole issue of child labor, um, a number of AGs have also brought cases involving child labor just in fast food restaurants, having kids work extremely long hours. Mm. Um, the DC AG's office um, and um, I think the DC AG's office, the New Jersey AG's office recently had a case involving Chipotle and they got $7 million or so in penalties. The Mass AG's office has done a, a lot of cases involving kids that are expected to work extremely long hours. The Washington AG's office as well. And so, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, we've ha we have this um, labor shortage and, um turning to i mean it's it's just horrifying that companies are turning to minors and breaking child labor laws you know whether the ones that you know just protect children's time and make sure that they get enough rest and have healthy you know healthy lives and are able to learn and go to school and are not overworked when they're so young um to these laws protecting their life and limb from doing hazardous mm -hmm. work you know these are 
you know, people are surprised to learn this, but child labor is still a persistent problem in our country. Right, right. So when I asked the Alabama Attorney General's office, they said that regarding the matter of potential law violations as a law enforcement agency, it's the longstanding policy of the Alabama Attorney General's office not to comment on the possibility of criminal investigations. <laughs> and so so that's, that's what they're saying, uh, why they haven't commented on it. But they have come out and made public statements saying that they would criminally prosecute doctors at the Alabama Veterans Affairs Hospital if they gave life-saving abortions to patients in violation of our abortion ban. So, you know, I don't, I, I don't know how uh, doggedly they maintain that policy. <laughs> but I think that right. you're right. They I could mean, at least be talking about this as an issue and, and be using their bully pulpit, so to speak, issuing press releases and, and condemning Hyundai. And like I you know, not so much as a tweet about this from the attorney right. general. Right. I mean, I will say, having worked in government, that there are times when when government agencies are doing things, and especially with criminal cases, that they really can be doing a lot of work behind the scenes that you don't know about. Mm -hmm. Um, So I will say that and and sort of talking publicly about a particular investigation is different than talking generally about like a field of different types of cases. But if there's no indication of involvement or interest in this issue in the past, that's obviously a really and no sort of public, (laughs) you know, expressions of concern. You know, that's obviously really, really concerning. And and it and and I would note also it's really in contrast not just with the AGs that I've mentioned who've done work on child labor issues, but state attorneys general throughout the country have been increasingly getting involved and protecting workers' rights. And there's been really a surge in um, activity in that area from suing Uber and Lyft and Shipt for treating workers as independent businesses instead of as employees with all of the rights that employees have to mm-hmm. suing Amazon for really unsafe working conditions, both related to the pandemic and also related to ergonomic and like longstanding indis- injuries to just like run of the mill everyday wage theft cases. There are now um, about nine or 10 AG's offices that have dedicated worker protection units that have staff that are full-time focused on protecting workers' rights. And as I wrote about in in, um, a recent New York Times op-ed that I wrote, um, you know, Republican AGs, meanwhile, are suing to stop a pay raise for Mm. employees of federal contractors that was part of um, President Biden's executive order and and administrative action. So you have, you know, one set of AGs that are fighting wage theft and fighting workplace dangers, and then the Republicans are trying to prevent people um, from getting a raise. Um, So it just feels very stark. So without, you know, you know, the details of this particular child labor case, you know, I would hope that they're getting involved because these facts are really extreme Mm -hmm. and egregious and outlying. And I would hope that any um, government agency in any state that is focused on protecting children or protecting workers or just protecting the public broadly would be looking for any opportunity to have an impact in this situation. Um, But 
you know, separate and apart from this particular case, just more broadly, there's so much opportunity for state AGs and for state and local government officials to be protecting workers, passing laws, enforcing laws, enforcing workers' rights, getting people paid sick leave, so many things. Um, and, you know, we really don't see a lot of that from the Republican side. Right. Certainly. And, and you, you mentioned that New York Times article. And so that's that's a good that's a good place to switch gears, um, because that that's actually what we wanted to bring you on the show to talk about. And the article is titled Don't Buy the Republican Appeal to Workers. And so I guess let's start with that. What are Republicans trying to do to appeal to workers, you know, insofar as they are workers? Right. You know, you can appeal to workers on non-worker grounds. You know, maybe you appeal to them in, in you know, this social issue that they care about or, or whatever. But but there are there there is a class of Republican politician that is that is is trying to make a a quote unquote working class case for the Republican Party. Right. So wh- wh- how are they doing that? I mean, I think a lot of it is optics and play acting and, you know, it's through, I mean, the examples that I, that I included in the piece, we have um, Dr. Oz, who's a, you know, bazillionaire, um, you know, with, you know, more houses than I have fingers, right? Um, who's running for Senate in Pennsylvania, and you have him um, going to the supermarket, pretending he's a regular guy, buying vegetables for a veggie tray, and like complaining about the cost of it, and you know, just trying to act like he's just a regular Joe, like going to the store. And then the ad where he's I don't know how many different guns he shoots, but there's like <laughs> guitar, twangy guitar music in the background. Right, right. And, and I've seen people analyze that and like, he, you know, he shoots and he hits some, you know, he shoots the gun and he hits something, but apparently it's like he didn't actually hit it, but that's a separate question. But it's just like really using these. Well, like, now, so hold on, Terry. So you're telling me that you're questioning the sincerity of those videos where <laughs> uh, Dr. Oz is is shooting guns and, and listening to country music? I mean, maybe in one of his mansions, he, <laughs> he has some boss who listens to country music. Right. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a lot of um, using sort of clothing and using, you know, attacking coastal elites and a lot mm. of dog whistles, um, you know, and, and sort of phrasing that sort of speaks to, you know, sort of identity issues. And a lot of it is, um, you know, when I, what was so interesting when I looked, what, what sort of spurred me to write the piece was that I saw a few different examples all around the same time of Republicans and conservatives actually standing up for workers, which almost in, in U.S. workers, which almost, you know, which is very, very rare, right? Aside mm-hmm. from talking about um, China and like railing about China and how bad China is, like you don't really see many instances of actual concrete policy action that they are willing to take to protect workers. So I saw or cases where they'll champion the worker against an employer. So I saw right. these three examples and they were so interesting to me. One of them was the case of the public school coach in Bremerton, Washington State, who insisted mm. on um, praying at 
midfield very publicly with students um, in a, you know, kind of coercive way for the student athletes in a way that was, you know, not appropriate for a public school employee, right? So that was one. And he became a real right wing cause celeb and, you know, everybody loved him. So that was one. And he won his case in the Supreme Court, even though he was, I mean, the facts of the case are extraordinary. Like he was offered other more private places to pray. He wasn't fired. He was placed on paid leave and then opted not to reapply for the job and then claimed mm-hmm. discrimination. Yeah. He also, um, the school district tried to moot out the case because he had moved to Florida in the meantime. Um, and they said like, he's not gonna move back to Washington State for a $5,000 a year job coaching football. Mm-hmm. And his lawyers filed papers saying, absolutely, he will immediately be back to coach the team. And meanwhile, there's been follow-up <laughs> reporting about how the school district tried to rehire him and like, he's not coaching the Bremerton (laughs) high school football team right now, right? He's going on the right-wing talk show circuit. So that was one case. Another was a case involving a couple of Kroger's employees who were um, let go because they refused to wear a heart logo that the company had put on their new aprons. And the heart had like three colors. It was like yellow, two shades of blue and red. And the company had some kind of like corporate speak explanation of what the heart was about. It was like for Mm -hmm. our, you know, the red is for the freshness of our food and the Uh. yellow is to uplift every day. I mean, it was like classic kind of corporate interpretation of, you know, whatever, like, and, um, but these two workers felt that it looked a little bit too much like a rainbow and that they believed that it uh, was meant to support LGBTQ rights, um, gay and lesbian rights, and they refused to wear it. And the facts of that case, again, are pretty extraordinary. In the, their depositions, they were shown logos for a number of other um, major national companies' um, logos, brands like Google and the Olympics or NBC, and all of them, they were just shown the logos, and they said, yes, I think that that, that is too much of a gay rainbow for me. Mm-hmm. And one of them even... Um, was shown the Skittles logo and felt that the Skittles logo would be objectionable oh to gosh. her religion. And they said that they actually like rainbows because of course rainbows come from the Bible and the right, Noah's right, Ark right. story. They said they liked rainbows in general, just not the rainbows that were mm. expressing gay rights. But the thing is like, all of this is just wild. But then when you look at the actual heart, it's not even a rainbow, right? And they refused <laughs> right. to wear it and they were terminated for that. And the EEOC, led by a Trump appointee, very concerned about, you know, religious um, you know, discrimination against people for their religious beliefs. The EEOC brought the case and a Trump appointed judge um actually granted um I mean the 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 specific leak like procedural aspects of it are not interesting to general people except lawyers but basically a trump appointed judge kind of upheld the discrimination part of their case and they ended up getting a settlement and getting ninety thousand dollars each so that was the second case and then the third case was um during the time when a lot of companies were mandating vaccinations um, and most of them were doing like vaccine or test every week. So, you know, there were other options, but when they were mandating vaccinations, there was a small, almost all workers complied with that. Some people liked it, some people didn't, but like people complied. And, you know, I think the statistics are depending upon the, you know, the statistics, the statistics I've seen are sort of 95 or 97% of people whose employers required vaccination 
Michigan just went ahead and got it. Mm-hmm. And a few Republican-led states um, rushed to pass laws making sure that people who quit or were fired because they refused vaccination would be eligible for unemployment insurance. And, you know, I support a broad safety net for people who are unemployed, of course, but these were states that were really had have always been like really miserly about unemployment mm-hmm. insurance. They had turned down and prematurely ended additional unemployment insurance that was paid by the federal government that wasn't even being paid from within their state. Some of these states don't allow um, victims of domestic violence to get unemployment insurance. And so you see that contrast of like, these are the favored workers. We want to make this statement that they get unemployment insurance because they're turning down the vaccine. And so what I saw right. when I looked at these three, and they're they're all kind of disparate, right? They're different industries. They're different kinds of issues. But what I saw when I looked at all three is that they're not standing up for workers in relation to their the Republicans and the conservatives in these cases. They're not standing up for workers in relation to their wages mm-hmm. or paid sick leave or the right to have a union or um, you know workplace safety and health. It's all like these culture war narratives, right? right? It's us versus them. It's you know the the you know godless heathens trying to you know incur you know, trying to make incursions on our um, Christian, conservative Christian country Mm -hmm. um, or the government trying to like make us have these vaccines, um, which, you know, all how all of COVID just got so politicized is like one of the great tragedies um, of our time. Um, And so that was the thing that I found really interesting was that there's no real plan that they ever articulate about how they want to actually help workers. They oppose raising the minimum wage. They oppose paid sick leave. They oppose paid family and medical leave. When there were the child tax credit that was sending people money um, every month, it just helped so many people um, just, you know, afford the Cut the child poverty rate in half. Right, exactly. You know, and they oppose that. They oppose you know, limiting the price of insulin, like all of these different things that in so many different ways from a lot of different angles really help working people live their lives um, and help help workers as workers, help working families. Um, they oppose all of that. But then they have a person, a worker who like sees a Skittles bag as a front for gay rights and they're willing to like that is who they're going to champion as you know in relation to the workplace and that contrast to me was just so striking and so you know like absurd and like it's one of those things where if it weren't so devastating to people's lives it would just be pure comedy Right. Well, and and you have another article in the American Prospect called uh, The Real Victims of Cancel Culture Are America's Workers. And, you know, a lot of these are are kind of in line with like there's this broader cancel culture narrative about, you know, conservatives are censored and all this and and we've got to take the vaccine and and we've got to wear pride pins. And, you know, I could envision a policy that um, 
you know, actually does protect them in these narrow type of culture war instances. You know, I think that the I think that the praying in in um, that coach, I think, is, is a pretty unique thing. But, you know, I don't I don't I don't know. I don't I'm, I'm fine with people not wearing a pin from a company, you know, if they don't want to. I think that's you know, I, I have no objections to that. And how, how could we protect that while also protecting other people's freedom of speech? Well, we could. Uh, uh, we could strengthen the union <laughs> at Kroger. We could institute policies that would help strengthen the union's bargaining position at Kroger um, so that none of the workers have to wear, you know, these these corporate messages if they don't want or that they can wear their own messages if, if they would like. And, 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 of course, you know, we actually see uh, Republican politicians and attorneys and, and, and all of this fighting workers' rights to wear union pins at work. So, on the one hand, they're saying, oh, you shouldn't have to wear this pin that's not even a gay pride thing if you don't want because you think it's a gay pride thing. And on the other hand, you should have the freedom to do that, but on the other hand, you shouldn't have the freedom to wear a union pin if you want. I mean, it's, you know, there's, it's just the only times that they actually help workers as workers is when it narrowly intersects with these weird culture war narratives that they have. Yes, I think that's right. And that was what so struck me about these cases was exactly that point that you make. And, And I think that your point, too, about how, you know, strengthening unions actually supports everyone. It helps mm-hmm. all workers from being canceled. If you want right. people <laughs> to have the ability to, you know, I mean, just cause termination, people mm-hmm. can't, can't, you know, what just cause termination is, which is included in, um, you know, basically all union contracts, people can only be fired for a reason that's related to their job performance. And also there's typically a requirement of progressive discipline. So you get some kind of warning um, before something so, you know, stark happens and so devastating as losing your job and losing your livelihood. Um, and if if people really cared about making sure um, that people weren't canceled at work, strong unions are the best way really to do that um but i mean they're really again, the only way to do that almost you know we can talk about passing just cause laws in in different states but you know the state enforcement is so difficult to keep up you know we've got laws on the books we ostensibly have child labor laws on the books in alabama right uh but we still we've still had children working in manufacturing facilities and we're going to be talking some more about that later in the show with with Sarah Lazare about the you know businesses and bosses trying to loosen child labor laws but you know uh, it's it if you are genuinely concerned with making it more difficult for bosses to fire workers because they don't like their speech then that's the kind of thing that you should be that you should be championing championing more unions, more protections for unions, just cause in the state law, stuff like that. But they're not doing that. Oh, right, absolutely. And the you know, passing the PRO Act, there are so mm. many obstacles for workers who want to organize a union and all of the recent surveys show massive increases in support for unions. I think that there was a recent study that, you know, a survey that 70% of Americans uh, approve of unions and about half of non-union private sector workers said that they would join a union if they could. And meanwhile, the private section, private sector union density rate stays in the like six to seven range. Right. And this is because 
there are so many anti-union, there are so many obstacles and because American corporations, in contrast to corporations in you know, other developed countries, which have accepted that, you know, workers having a voice and having, I mean, the idea that unions are so, you know, radical and adverse to the interests of their country, of their company is just wild. Like unions do not want their company where they work to fail. They want Mm -hmm. it to succeed because if it fails, the workers are going to be out of a job. Of course, they want the pie to be divided a little bit differently, right? But like, mm-hmm. you know, unions can be beneficial for companies and American companies don't seem to understand that. Like they, unions can reduce t- turnover and have much more stability among your workforce. You can have a better trained workforce. You know, right. there's there's some research showing that they increase um, productivity, which makes sense because if you're not like constantly churning through people, you're going to be more productive. Um, and so in other countries, you know, the, the idea, like a union is just, you know, and you have these employers who kind of say like, well, we don't, yes, you know, in some factories, you know, some, you know, in the old days, like people needed unions because they were so horrendously oppressed. We don't need them now because we're right, basically right, decent. But the thing is, a union is just a way for workers to have a collective voice that and have, you know, some collective ability to bargain on mass with the employer. And like, that's just not that should not be a radical thing that is seen as adverse to employers interests and again in many developed countries it's just much more accepted um and that that's just part of the of the picture in industrial Mm -hmm. policy and in in the economy um but here it's just seen as so um you know, oppositional to the interests of of companies, which I think is is a big mistake. But as right. we were talking about the, the politics of it, yes, like you know, Republicans have opposed the Pro Act. Um, I think Marco Rubio came up with some proposal that was like reinstitute you know, company we want, unions. We, yeah, right, exactly, <laughs> sweetheart unions. You know, yeah. um, that would be kind of employer dominated, and that's the kind of voice that he wants. Um, you know, that he says he wants to give workers, and so. So, you know, it's just to me, it's just so stark um, how how critical it is for people to have unions. Now, I would take issue a little bit with one thing um, that you said, which is talking about sort of, you know, I do think that government standards and government enforcement is really important as you know, I think that that's sort of Mm -hmm. another important um, I mean, not that you were arguing against it, but just sort of the notion, you know, the fact that like there were these child labor violations, it doesn't mean that the laws aren't having an impact in deterring a lot of violations and a lot of, Mm -hmm. you know, there are a lot of employers out there that the law, even if the law isn't perfect, like I believe strongly in strong enforcement and effective enforcement of the law. And I've devoted you know most of my career to that, but I still feel like having really strong pro worker laws is helpful because there are employers who try to follow the law and setting community norms and setting out like, this is the public standard that we accept that we expect. I think that that's, that that's very important. And having those baseline labor standards allows unions to have a floor to then negotiate Mm -hmm. up from, you know? So like, if you don't have whatever, minimum wage, overtime, paid sick leave, like once you have these things required by law, unions can build on that and negotiate for even more. Um, So I do think that those government standards and government enforcement matter a lot, even as there's, you know, 
imperfectly enforced and right. massively under re- enforcement is massively under resourced. Um, but I do think that both of those pillars really matter for protecting workers and creating better working conditions. Absolutely. Uh, Terry Gerstein, director of the State and Local Enforcement Project at the Harvard Law School Labor and Work Life Program. Uh, Terry, thank you for talking to us this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was wonderful having a conversation with you. Absolutely. We're going to take a break really quick, and we will be right back talking to some workers in Tennessee fighting the effort to put right to work in the state constitution. Don't change the channel. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. 
Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, you can send us a text. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Our next guests are on the line now. Kermit Moore is president of the Memphis, Tennessee A. Philip Randolph Institute, and Wes Troutershod is the Teamsters local 519 president and business manager out of Knoxville, Tennessee. Kermit, Wes, thank you for taking the time with us this morning. I appreciate it. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's great to have y'all. So let's start here, Wes. Um, I always think it's a good thing to start these conversations. It's good to start these conversations with some basic education about the issue because there's there's so much confusion about uh, about this. So so what is right to work? What you know, what mechanically does, quote unquote, right to work do? Is is right to work is really the right to work for less. Any state that has right to work laws, it is proven 100% that that state will have lower wages, that state will have higher poverty rates, that state will have poor health care, and they'll have much more likelihood of workplace deaths. Um, and that is all driven by big corporation and big business, and, and, and we're trying to vote this amendment one down, which tries to enshrine right to work in the state constitution of uh, Tennessee. Right, right. And and what it what it does is you know, it's basically and it, and it's funny that these are the people that are that are pushing this, right? These small government types, but it's basically the government coming in and telling private individuals in a contract negotiation, telling unions and employers that they can't agree to have a fair share clause in their union contracts saying that, you know, people who are represented, it's not even, you know, in collective bargaining states, unions don't even have to, workers don't even have to put this in their contracts. Employers don't have to agree to it. It's just something that they can do. But in right to work states, the government's coming in and taking that off the table, saying that you can't do that, saying that you have to allow free riders in your union workplace, that they have to get all these benefits um, without, you know, w- without any without anything else. And of course, you know, they're always opposed to the government coming in and saying, you know, we should have this minimum wage or we should have these safe working conditions or, you know, we should ensure that the people doing this type of work you know, have this certain level of education and understanding about the job that they're doing. You know, they always they always say that's big government, right? Big government intervention, uh, but but they love this for some reason. Um. So the the vote y'all will be having, what is you know what's it on exactly? The the you know y'all already are a right to work state. You've got right to work in the law. This is to put it in the constitution, right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, at, it's, uh, at, at the end of the day, putting it in the Constitution means absolutely nothing. 
it is a uh, a law that's been on the federal books and, and and law here in the state of Tennessee for the last 75 years. So putting it in the Constitution is uh, means nothing really at the end of the day. But what it does is it uh, once you enshrine it into the Constitution, it makes it uh, very difficult for future legislators to to change anything. They're not going to change anything unless there's another mm -hmm. constitutional amendment that's placed on the ballot. So they're taking away the working class people and the people of this state's opportunity to create other laws in the future by locking us in. And this is all done by really no greedy politicians, the supermajority. Mm -hmm. and, and then it's also done by big corporation and big business who have bought off these greedy politicians. Right, right. We've got a question uh, from Jeb in the chat. When Alabama put this in our Constitution, which we did in, I believe, 2016, um, the referendum also did away with the state-level Davis-Bacon laws. Uh, is the situation in Tennessee the same over there, or do y'all still have Davis-Bacon-type laws in Tennessee, or are those gone, or, or what's the situation with that? Yeah, yeah, our, our Davis Bacon and, and prevailing wage still exist uh, within within our union and the project labor agreements and the uh, uh, just the different labor agreements that we have across the state. So, how would you know? There's some in, there's some kind of complicated math about how this would. Uh, how this would actually get put into the Constitution if it did. Talk to us about how the quote-unquote right-to-work side would quote-unquote win. Go ahead, Wes, because like he said, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it, it is. It's very complicated, and it's, uh, it's, it's very confusing. Uh, first, the language that they put in, they, they, they make it sound like the best thing since sliced bread, but hmm. at it, it's really just rat poison. So I'm not sure anybody could uh, uh, support it. But you know, reading it, you don't think, dang, this is this is good stuff. But no, it's no more than rat poison. So don't 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 be falling into their game. And and then the uh, how it works and, and how it, it turns out, like if the governor's race is the if the governor wins, the current governor and he has a million votes in order for the the constitutional amendment to uh, go in, it has to pass by 500,000 plus one votes in order for it to go in. So current governor gets a million and one and he's victorious, then the right to work um, uh, constitutional amendment has to have 500,000 plus one. If it's 499,000 to 400,000, the amendment does not go in. So mm. really is what we're looking at and what we're driving to is, is one, we want as many vote no's as we can get on the amendment one. And then if, if people are, are uneducated and they don't know what the issue is and they, they don't understand it, then, then, then don't even mark the amendment, just leave it alone. Right. Right, right, and so that's an that's an interesting kind of, you know, they have to their side is going to have to get the turnout up uh, in order to pass it. It's not just a simple majority of the people who vote in that on, on that specific amendment. They've got to hit a certain threshold, and so that's kind of interesting. And I and I think that really changes the calculus for um, you know for advocates of keeping it out of the Constitution. I think it makes it 
much more winnable to have this kind of weird calculation uh, in there. Uh, you know, I, th- I think it's, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm looking for y'all to come out victorious on Tuesday, uh, Lord willing, you know, knock on wood. But um, so we'll, we'll back up a little bit, Kermit, and, and, and let's, can you talk to us about some of the history of right to work? You know, I, we talked earlier about what it does and, and, and what some of the impacts are going to be, but what were some of the messages that proponents of quote unquote right to work were pushing as this was coming around, as this was was beginning to form? Well, first of all, good morning to you and your listeners. Right to work has been on the books for 75 years. Right to work has an anti-union and a racist beginning. And it should not be put in our Constitution. The the Republicans in our House and Senate, which is a supermajority, want to enshrine a law that's been on the book for 75 years. And that would mean that we would never have a chance to repeal it. We need all of your listeners who have family, friends in Tennessee to tell their family and friends to get out to vote and to vote no on one because it is anti-workers. If we put it in our constitution, they will sell Tennessee as a cheap labor state. Come, we got workers that'll work for nothing. It is about workers. It is about union. It is about getting our fair share. We need to vote no on one. Absolutely, and and you know some of that, some of that racist beginning was was really really explicit. You know they were talking about some of these people that were proponents of it, talking about how, uh, you know, if we don't have this right to work law, then. Then you know my lily white daughter is going to be have to be in the same organization as her black coworker, and we we can't have that, right? We can't have you know interracial solidarity and and people coming together, uh, black and white. Uh, we want to keep them apart, and that was you know that's a really I think an under um, you know uh, something that people don't understand enough. That that you know there when you know when we say that right to work really ha- it does have a racist origin like it, like it really does it was explicitly segregationist in its intent in a lot of these places and that's why people in suburbia people in the urban areas and our folks in Appalachian must come together in solidarity and beat this constitutional amendment Absolutely, and so Wes, what are uh, what are some of the other ways that this uh, um, that that right to work is is bad for uh, for working people? Yeah, I mean it's 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 bad all way around because collective bargaining uh, sets the the standard. Whether someone likes a union or whether they don't like a union, we set the bar. We set the bar for the middle class because whenever we go in and negotiate these contracts. 
and is just for an example, and this is what big business and big, big corporations wants to divide us on. Example, if we've got 10 employees in under a contract that we just organized and only three of them join the union and the rest of the other seven say, well, I want to be a right to work employee. Well, what kind of leverage do we have whenever mm -hmm. we go at the table with that company and that union busting attorney and say, we want better wages, we want better benefits, we want better working conditions, and by God, you're going to give it to us. And then that attorney's going to turn around and look at me as I'm negotiating that contract. He's going to look at me and he's going to tell me, you ain't got the support. You've got mm -hmm. three people behind you. Then I got other seven that's going to come in here and be right to work employed. You have no leverage. That's what this big corporation, big business is doing to the working class. I don't give a if you're if you're Democrat, Republican, or independent, and that's how you vote, that's good. This is the working class versus big corporation. And quite honestly, people need to start understanding that. They need to figure out where they stand. And I will assure you, whenever their livelihoods are on the line, they gonna pick that living wage. They don't pick their family that that they want to be able to live a daily life and live it comfortably. And that's what unions do. Right to work doesn't do that. It's right to work to fire. It's right to work for less. And people need to open their eyes and become more educated to the processes of what big corporation, big business is doing to the everyday working class people. Yep. Yep. Uh, amen, brother. Yeah. Amen. And. And we are uh, broadcasting on FM radio, um, and and so you know, Wes, your your union actually launched a sort of campaign, getting your rank and file Republican members to talk to some representatives in the legislature uh, to get them to oppose this, and and y'all felt like you were initially pretty successful, at least you thought. Can you talk to us about those efforts to um, to get? you know, get Republican members of the legislature to listen to their Republican constituents about this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is, look, is we knew the supermajority in this state wasn't going to listen to Wes Chattershaw. They wasn't going to listen to uh, uh, Kermit. We could go office to office and, and they was going to slam the door on us because we believe in working class people. We believe in everyday people. So, we had to come up with a strategy and that strategy and that plan was to find Teamster members and, and that vote Republican, but they are 100% union. They believe in the union way. They want better wages. They want better benefits. They want better working conditions and they want it for not just only their self, but they want it for the general public as well, the everyday worker. But so what we did is like we took a group of three of them, uh, UPSer, uh, Scott Arnwine, a construction guy, Dave Summers, another construction guy named Sean Ray, another UPSer named Marty Hinch. And, and we sent them to the Capitol to meet with the Republican supermajority in this state. Go to them, the directive, go to them one on one and make sure that they understand that you guys, Teamsters, that vote Republican, need their support because you are their constituents. Our guys did great. I mean, they did absolutely fantastic. And 
we felt like that we had the votes and and this is, we had the votes of the democrats we had the votes of the republicans and we had the, the votes of the independents and that was the work of our members well we get into the the final hour and what happens is they bring in the nfib and then they bring in the chamber of commerce and then they they go to the republican party and they get them in a group and they tell them this is not what you're going to do and every one of the those legislators backed up on us with the exception of one as uh there's a guy and, and one abstained guy named scotty campbell which is a republican out of hamlin county stayed with his what he told us he would do the other ones uh voted up like a lawn chair because mm. they're bought or by big corporation big business and it's time for everyday democrats everyday republicans everyday independents everyday working class people to to open your eyes open your eyes to look at it this is this is what it is they don't they don't give two about you in the hey, way you yeah vote. right right yep yep we're on the radio <laughs> oh, i'm sorry <laughs> Uh, it's all good, buddy. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean you're 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 totally right that you know these people don't care about us, and and it's important to understand that, and it's important to and and you know it like if you it, I, I talked about this last week, I went to the Tennessee Right to Work, you know, vote yes or whatever their website, and I read off some of the people that are on their leadership, whatever, um, and. If that was the people that was on my leadership council, I would almost just not publish it because all it is is politicians and bosses. Like there's no there's no just normal working people on that list. And if that is the list of your supporters, then you know that as says a lot. It says a lot. And you know, if you're a normal working class person in Tennessee or you know normal working class people in Tennessee, understand who is behind this. Cuz that's a very important thing and and you know, Wes, you said that that folks that uh you know, the folks that went in there after y'all to change their mind, it was just these organizations of bosses, right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it was. It was all like I said, it's big business, big corporation. And and that lead and guide everything. They don't. They're going to tell those legislators what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, and then they're going to give us the general public all the social issues so we can fight fight amongst each other. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, as uh, that's what it's about. It's it's working class versus big corporations, and and they continuously try to divide us. Yeah. Wes Trattershawn, uh, President and Business Manager of Teamsters Local 519. Kermit Moore, President of the Memphis uh, A. Philip Randolph Institute. I appreciate y'all's time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Folks, we're going to go to a break really quick, and we will be right back talking about those same bosses, those same bosses, the National Federation of Independent Businessmen, Businesses, those same bosses pushing right to work in Tennessee, They want more child labor. We're going to be talking about that with Sarah Lazare on the other side. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, 
reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at iamaw44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. 
Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, you can send us a text. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We have, we're going to be doing a segment about the amendments that are on the ballot in overtime. Uh, so make sure that you stay tuned if you want to uh, learn some more about what all is going to be on your ballot on Tuesday. But right for Alabama folks, for Alabama, Alabama folks. voters, we will be discussing the amendments. Yeah. But right now we've got Sarah Lazare. She is the former editor of in the former web editor of In These Times magazine and is currently editor at Workday magazine, which covers labor and working folks in the Midwest. Sarah, welcome to the Valley Labor Report. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So you've got this article in the American Prospect titled uh, The Conservative AstroTurf Organization Rolling Back Child Labor Protections. Who is that conservative AstroTurf organization? That conservative AstroTurf organization is called the National Federation of Independent Business. They present themselves as a trade association of mom and pop stores In reality, they are a very well-funded conservative organization who has been around many, many decades that pushes for policy that benefits corporate America. Um, Their their funding sources are very untransparent. I tried quite a bit to get information about where their current funding comes from. What we do know is that roughly 10 years ago, it was revealed that the National Federation of Independent Business had received $3.7 million from Crossroads GPS, um, which was co-founded by the conservative consultant and lobbyist Carl Rove. And also around that same time, the National Federation of Independent Business received $2.5 million from groups affiliated with the Koch network. And that, you know, that was reported by the Washington Post. So yeah, right. so the National Federation of Independent Business is a conservative organization that goes around um, advocating for all of the conservative causes celebrate. Yeah, and they kind of act like, you know, like you said, they kind of front like they are, oh, we're just mom and pop businesses, you know, and, and but I, I think that these funding store sources, it, it, you know, it's not exactly clear where everything is coming from, but within the last 10 years, we know that they've gotten at least $6 million from Carl Rove and the Koch brothers, you know, and their, their organizations, right? And I think that that's, that's pretty indicative of, you know, if they were really just an organization of small businesses, they wouldn't need that money, right? Organizations of workers, unions, we don't get millions of dollars from these, you know, these other organizations, uh, you know, billionaire, millionaire funders, we get it in, you know, a UPS driver giving his union, uh, you know, 20 bucks a week, a federal worker given 20 bucks a pay period, you know, machinists given 90 bucks a month, you know, stuff like that. That's where unions get their money from. But 
at least some, you know, and we and it's unclear how much, but at least some of their uh, of their money is coming from these big conservative donors, and they are. And you said, you know, they basically follow the conservative costs, you know, the conservative cause of the day, which is not what the average small business owner would be doing. You know, the average small business owner is not a reactionary conservative ideologue, right? Yeah, so um, about 97% of the time, the National Federation of Independent Business um, endorses conservative politicians, and they have gotten behind a whole host of conservative causes. They um, sued the Obama administration under the Affordable Care Act. Um, this is to the right of the average small business owner based on what we know about them. Um, you know, I will say we don't have current information about where NFIB's funding comes from. I think that there's a good chance that it still comes from these conservative organizations. I They also get money from their members, and I asked them mm -hmm. several times to give me a full list of their members, and they wouldn't. Um, so, you know, it's hard to know who exactly, exactly is funding them just in terms of member donations. Right, right. So let's talk about this child labor stuff. Um, what are what are the the particular changes to the law that they're trying to push? So this is really nefarious because they are using the justification of the so-called labor shortage, which a lot of labor activists will tell you actually is just a shortage of good, well-paying, dignified jobs. But so they're using the justification of there being a supposed labor shortage to say that we need to allow children to expand the hours that they're allowed to work. So in Ohio, a bill was introduced in October of 2021, bipartisan, so supported by both Republican and Democratic lawmakers in the state. And it proposes to allow, allow 14 and 15 year olds to work until nine o'clock p.m. on the school night if they get permission from a parent or a legal guardian. Um, just one important detail, this would apply to employers who are not covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is a piece of federal labor law. Um, but the lawmakers also introduced a, a concurrent resolution that calls on Congress to loosen that federal labor law. So essentially what they're trying to do is weaken child labor protections across the country. Um, having kids as young as 14 work more hours is really troubling. There are studies that show that teenagers working too many hours, especially during the school year, have a pretty negative impact on their development, can lead to behavior problems. You know, child labor laws were created in the first place on the basic principle that children are vulnerable members of our society who should be protected and shouldn't have to work all the time. And so the National Federation of Independent Business on December 15th of 2021, submitted testimony in support of the effort. They did so alongside a whole host of businesses and corporations. Um, the Ohio Restaurant Association submitted this really absurd testimony where they actually said that having kids as young as 14 working more hours is good because it saves them from screen time, which was a pretty amazing argument <laughs> to be making. Right. Um, so that's the Ohio bill, the Wisconsin bill, um, which was actually vetoed by the governor in February, um, was similar. It would have permitted kids as young as 14 to work as late as 9.30 p.m. on a school night and until 11 p.m. when they don't have class the following day. And it also would have applied to employers who are not covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. 
Um, and state lobbying records show that the National Federation of Independent Business um, supported the bill. Um, so those, uh, so even though that bill was vetoed by the governor, it's still concerning because that governor could is up for re-election, and there's a new governor who's been supported, who's been endorsed by Trump, who is actually running. So it is actually feasible that this could pass in the future. And then there's a third um, similar bill that the National Federation of Businesses of Independent Businesses also supported. Um, that one passed in New Jersey. It was signed into law by the governor um, in July, and it permits 16 and 17 year olds to work as much as 50 hours a week when they are not in school, and allows 14 and 15 year olds to work as many as 40 hours during the summer months. Mm. Um, so. The, this is different from the others because it doesn't go beyond what's permitted in the Fair Labor Standards Act, but rather it rolls back New Jersey's youth employment laws, which had previously been more protective. So the way the FLSA works is that whichever law is more protective of workers reigns. Um, so, yeah, mm -hmm. so the National Federation of Independent Businesses lobbied for the measure. Um, the state's organizing director testified in favor. And so, you know, there are a lot of different businesses that are advocating for these kinds of measures. If you just read local news reports, you will see, you know, the owner of a local Dairy Queen. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think Six Flags supported one of these measures in one of the states. Um, so there are a lot of different businesses, but the National Federation of Independent Business um, really stuck out just because they have this conservative history. Um, and one of the things I will say is that they have been using the so-called labor shortage to justify why um, we need kids to be able to work more hours, but they have been arguing for anti-worker, anti-union, deregulatory measures mm -hmm. long before the so-called labor shortage existed. You know, they're in the 70s. They lobbied against the um, the OSHA Act. They, you know, they were big supporters right. of the Janus decision in 2018 that gutted public sector unions. So it makes it makes them look pretty disingenuous that they're arguing for the things they already had an interest in arguing for, but using the so-called labor shortage to justify it now. Right. And they were one of the people, um, for our Alabama listeners, they were some of the people that were pushing, and of course this this happened across, this, uh, across the country, they were pushing uh, deregulation and a lack of liability for employers who um, who recklessly placed employees in harm's way during the pandemic with respect to the coronavirus. Uh, they pushed a law that passed here in Alabama uh, that would shield employers from liability who recklessly put their employees in danger. You know, it, 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 you know, even in the face of zero lawsuits, you know, almost no lawsuits have been filed against people for, you know, having uh, contracted coronavirus at work um, because that would be very difficult to prove. But, you know, there should be if, if you're, you know, especially during the middle of the pandemic, right when it was first starting, um, you know, if you're cramming people and, and making them work in, in super confined spaces without any masks and all this stuff, just really egregious, egregious, reckless stuff. There should be some amount of recourse for workers, um, and they and they took that away here in Alabama, and that's one of the things that they pushed at the beginning of the pandemic. And and you know, so Sarah, one of the things that you uh, mentioned in this article was uh, that there are other organizations trying to pull back 
child labor protections, and one of them said uh, that work is a gift our kids can handle. So, you know, Sarah, are you sure that you're not, you know, in a sense, stealing candy from these children in a certain sense, like stealing gifts from them, uh, stealing the gift of labor? Yeah, child labor is one of the great privileges <laughs> that children get to have. You know, how cruel of me. Uh, yeah, the the mental gymnastics that people will do to say that it's good for children to work are incredibly cynical. You know, I don't think that, uh, you know, Betsy DeVos's family or the children of the people who are in leadership roles at the National Federation of Independent Businesses, I don't think they're the ones lining up first to say, okay, I'm going to work extra hours at or have my 14-year-old work extra hours at Dairy Queen or bagging so. groceries. They're not talking about their own kids. And it's the same with, with those workers who are sent into perilous lethal conditions and then deprived of the basic tools that they had for accountability after the fact, after they were already harmed. It, it's not the head of NFIB. It's not the you know conservative donors who we know gave donations to them 10 years ago. Who are who are saying, okay, well, let me be the first in line to be a server or work at a meatpacking plant or work in one of the industries where people were dying the most. We know who they're talking about. They're talking about poor and working class families and kids. Those are the sacrificial lambs. That's who we're talking about when we're when we're saying that the labor shortage needs to be filled on the backs of children. Right. Right. Yep, that's absolutely right. It's not these people that are going to be doing these things. It, it's going to be us, no. and 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 that's why you know that's why it's important to understand who these people are that are pushing these kinds of things, and and why we should oppose it. Uh, Sarah Lazare is editor at Workday Magazine. Where can people find that and your other work? Yeah, um, WorkdayMagazine.org is our website, and we partner with a lot of different publications. Uh, the American Prospect is one of our publishing partners, so this piece that you referenced is a co-publication of Workday Magazine and the American Prospect. And uh, yeah, we would love it if folks would check us out. We cover labor in the Midwest, and we also cover international labor issues. Sarah, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, we're big fans of the Valley Labor Report, too. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to come on this morning. Uh, Have a good one. All right. All right. Thanks so much. All right. All right, folks, uh, we're going to be wrapping up our main show now. Uh, Make sure that you stay tuned for Overtime. You can find us on Facebook and YouTube where we will continue the show for another hour, hour and a half or so. Uh, And the first thing in the second half of the show that we're going to be getting into is the amendments on the Alabama ballot. We have constitutional amendments to the Alabama Constitution. This is the longest, you know, in the world, the longest constitution in the world. It's ridiculous, the system that we have here in the state. But uh, uh, but join us in the second half of the show. We'll be breaking down the amendments on the Alabama ballot for the Alabama Constitution. We're also going to be talking to Mark Dudzig. He was the national organizer for the U.S. Labor Party, the one that was formed in 1996. Um, so that was that was a really interesting experiment, and not enough people talk about it. Uh, and, and you but know, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about um, you know some of that history and some of the lessons that that maybe we can learn from. And we'll be online only, so if any uh, Tennessee Teamsters want to call in and say some cuss <laughs> words, you go right ahead. Right, right. yeah. 
Yeah, that, that's, that's right. Maybe we can bring Wes back on. The- <laughs> Next time we bring Wes on, it's going to be in overtime. Uh- <laughs> Unfiltered. <laughs> Unfiltered, yeah. We're, we don't have the FCC censors. Um, so, yeah, uh, hang out with us on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, where we will be uh, uh, ridding ourselves of the shackles of the FCC censors, talking about the U.S. Labor Party, um, talking about interest rates, too, talking about the amendments on the Alabama ballot, talking about um, right-wing weirdos attacking workers, attacking a Starbucks worker for no reason, for no reason at all. So don't forget to vote on Tuesday, everybody. Yep. Don't forget to vote on Tuesday, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. See you next week.